that time of the week. It's flat out RC time. Welcome back. You're joining the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. So welcome one and all, no matter where you are located. Another fine episode of Flat Out RC podcast coming up. Joining me this week, we're talking sort of gliding with a bit of a, a glider a glider nut, Colin Collier, a pretty well-known name, especially here in Victoria, in my home state, in the uh, gliding community, long-time aero modeler. So stay tuned for, for Colin's story. Uh, now, before I forget, don't forget to do all the subscribing. Subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Tell your friends as well. Let's keep on spreading the Flat Out RC love. Get onto YouTube. Go and have a look at the iMac um, video that I just released not too long ago when I went to an iMac event and had a bit of fun. So a uh, plenty to do. Instagram, Facebook as well. Jump on the Flat Out RC bandwagon. Let's take a look at what's been on my mind. What has been on my mind? Well, not a great deal. Not a great deal whatsoever this week. Uh, had a busy week. Didn't think about model planes too much, but always do. Uh, the past week, we 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 celebrated. We remembered uh, my good friend Edo Segev. It's two years since his passing. Many of you would know of Edo through the model flying communities of being one of the the guns. So miss him greatly. Think about him. Every day, wish he was still here to hit the flying field with and, and enjoy some some good times. But uh, we will remember him and never forget. Now, besides that, um, you know, I think what I've realised recently is, is there seems to be a bit of a slump in the hobby as far as far as, as far as new products go. That. We're not seeing a lot of exciting new products come out. We're seeing a lot of variations on a the theme. So I saw that Horizon Hobby's got a new Trojan Foamy. I think it could be a smaller one or, you know, they have their safe technology in their receiver and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's nothing sort of new. Um, Extreme Flight, I got, I think, a new Edge 85-inch or something like that. Now, I can't remember the exact dimensions, so don't hold me to it. But I know they've got a new new Edge, I think it is. But it's just a variation again on the theme. Not saying it's a bad model because it's an extreme flight. No doubt it's going to be great. But there seems to be this this lack of investment in giving new ideas a go. We see sometimes in the turbine uh, sphere, some of the turbine manufacturers trying a few different things. But um, I don't know about you. It'd be interesting to see what you your thoughts are as far as models that you'd love to see come to light. Um, do we need another cub? Not really, you know. Talking to some people in the industry, making a cub is a very, very safe bet. You know, you're going to make sales. Uh, even like making a trojan or something like that, they know they're going to make sales. Uh, so they'd like to stick to the proven formulas from a commercial perspective. But and that sort of leaves more the more niche manufacturers to uh, step up. And and we do see some of those. But um, I suppose. And if you really want something unique, go and build it yourself. That's what I think is is probably going to be the future uh, of of the hobby. Is if you want something that's different, just go and build it. And fortunately, we've got plenty of uh, laser cut kit manufacturers. We're going to have one another one, I think, on next week's uh, podcast. I've got the interview lined up already. Just got to record it. 
But uh, I think that could be the way of the future as companies sort of, as the market diminishes, people are going to try to take less risk and they're just going to do the safe bet. But I, but really, I was talking to someone the other day about this. Imagine if Horizon Hobby shut shop. What would the hobby do? We really have this situation globally that you take Horizon Hobby out and you've taken a large chunk of the manufacturing capability sort of out of the market and that will further reduce our... Um, our, our choice and that's always a big thing for me when I talk about look at the hobby that it's you know the consequences of declining participation is not just less people with the field but uh, it's less of an industry and this is why I've been saying the industry and associations need to step up and really fight for their survival in a kind of way now before it's too late because uh, backs will be up against it down the track but uh, yeah you know without horizon hobby um, we really do not have a lot of great innovation um, uh, happening, really. That's why I don't mind seeing them have their RC car division and that kind of stuff, and that helps keeps the money flowing through through their business. And of course, they need to make money. Everybody needs to make money. The industry needs to make money. All those people that have said to me over the years, "Oh, these retailers ripped me off," and all that kind of stuff. It's a load of rubbish. All you need to do is ask them when they went on a holiday last, and they'll say, "I can't afford it and haven't been able to." Or ask them if they're driving a Ferrari. If they're making a fortune, where's the money going? Uh, but what you'll find out when you speak to most people that run a, a hobby-based industry, they do it for the love of it. Horizon is a very big corporate entity, but the average punters, you look at the guys like Extreme Flight, Pilot RC, Tony Tan from Pilot RC, I had a chat with him when I was in China once, and he's a, he's a funny character. He loves model planes. And I said to him, Tony, how did you start this? And he said, well... I went flying and I kept on crashing planes and so I thought I might as well start a business so that I had an endless supply of model planes. And And he said, you know, I don't make any money out of this. I'm not making a lot of money. He makes a living. And as Chris Hinson from Extreme Flight, the owner says to me, you know, it's just about making a bit of money so that when you retire, you've got a bit left over to, to hold you through. And that's that's his aim. He knows that he's not going to become a mega multimillionaire off, off a brand like Extreme Flight because the market's quite small. And it's the same in China with the Chinese manufacturers. They all say, oh, no, no, we're not going to make a lot of money out of this. And, you know, yes, in China, the manufacturing costs are low, but they're getting higher and their, their, their cost of living is increasing and, and they've got greater wants because, you know, they're making more money. And so, you know, you watch this space, I'm saying the next five to 10 years, you're going to, we're going to see an increase in China in the, in, in the manufacturing costs. We'll see other countries like Vietnam probably step up where, you know, they're, they're, Still got very low cost of production, but um, there's always kit building. And I know that the builders out there will like what I'm saying. Enough of my ranting. Now to my favorite part of the podcast, and that's when we have a guest. And this week's guest is a guy that I've had on my radar for a long time. His name is Colin Collier, and he comes from Melbourne, Victoria, and he's a glider guy. Uh, proudly a glider guy has flown other things control line over the years and that but i think he's very much known as being a glider guy especially down at the um, the varms club down here which is a a glider centric uh club and you know he's been president he's done a lot of good work for that club but uh he's been a very active modeler and still is we actually tried to record this a week earlier but uh i think he forgot uh but he was away uh down at camp down flying gliders so i was more than happy to say I'll talk to you next week. Go and enjoy the flying. Uh, and now we're caught up and uh, managed to have another chat and um, and get get his story on tape. So over to my chat with the one and only Colin Collier. 
it's summertime in Australia, especially down where I'm in Melbourne, Victoria, and I always equate summertime with a glider flying. And this week joining us on the Flat Out RC podcast is a guy who I rate as one of the most well-known glider pilots in Victoria, and that is Colin Collier. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Well, Colin, we have a lot to talk about, and we will be talking a fair bit about gliding. But before we start, how did you get into this wonderful, wonderful world of aero modelling? Uh, yeah, it's a long story. When I was about eight or ten, I used I built a little vampire out of oh, I'm going to call them blocks of wood, with about ten inch span. Put it on a bit of cotton about uh, twenty foot long and spun it around my head until I made myself giddy, giddy and got sick. I was about ten. <laughs> um, I was always looking up at aeroplanes. Nobody else around the area that I know of, well, my parents or anything. They didn't get me into it, so it was all sort of me. None of the rest of the family followed my passion. Uh, then the guy next door bought a big glider kit. Now, the big glider kit, I think, was a Hearns Eagle, which was about four-foot span um, by today's standards. It's not very big. He went away for work for two or three weeks, and I cut this kit up and made little aeroplanes out of all the wing rips. So that didn't go down very well. <laughs> Wait a second. So... Okay, where were you living? Were you in town or in the country or where? I've always been around, uh, that was North Clayton near Monashini, but of course there was no houses then, so we, we had a horse paddock in the backyard. It was before Monashini, so um, I could we could see Clayton Station, which was about a mile and a half away. We could see the train leave Springvale Station, which was three miles away, I think. Um, the good old days, um, would I swap it? Yeah, probably would. Um, I don't think we're going to get anything like it again. No, nah, not in the hustle and bustle of today's world. I think, uh, yeah, it, it's funny. When you, like, I know the area that you're talking about because I'm, I'm not too far away. And, uh, yeah, now it'd be worth a fortune, that land. It would be. Um, Bank Smith owned it. He was a taxi driver and ran horses there. So he had a, a horse racing track, which is where the scientific – CSIRO building is now. Oh, yeah. Um, road, had yeah. no model planes back then. Yeah. Um, my first sort of real model was a control line model that came out in the Sun, or Young Sun um, newspaper. And I'm going to say that's about, I'm guessing, 55 or something. Might be a bit after that. So it had a one and a half diesel in it. So what was it? Was it some sort of giveaway kind of thing with the magazine, with the newspaper, or no? They had the plans in the in the paper. Oh, really? I, I, I actually I digress. Um, before that, my dad built me a model called a Pedro with a two and a half type N in it, and I did my first figure nine with that in the in the first lap. So it wasn't very popular. And it was over asphalt. Oh no! no. Um, so it was a few years before I bought my own motor, which was in the I think it was called Tiger or something. So it's a full-size plan in Young Sun. Um, little things, you know. Um, tricked us. Where do you go and buy a bell crank? What's a bell crank? Words like that, you know, threw us a bit. We got there, and I can remember still, I was down at North Clayton Primary School after school one night. I actually flew the tank out and then fell over giddy as Billy O, and, and it was wet and muddy. So I went home as a... Happy as a pig in a proverbial, and I looked like I'd been in a pig in a proverbial. <laughs> yeah, okay. So you, you, did you have friends flying um, control line as well? No, learned it all by myself. 
Um, when did I get into it? Well, I also got into free flight about that time, but again, a loner. Um, I heard a Hearns Hobbies Sportster. I think that I flew over Monash Uni when Monash Uni was being built on the sports field there. That was about the same time and it had the same Type M one and a half in it. Oh, and I must have gone along to Oakley Model Aeroplane Club too because they used to fly down North Road um, behind the bowling green. Oh, really? And that would be pre-60. Um, my brother and I, although my brother didn't fly, we used to catch the first train on a Sunday morning and go down to Albert Park Lake because I used to fly there. And that was where the um, where the pits are now. Oh, yeah. I think I've heard of that. What were they flying? Control line? Control line. So they'd have team racing and they'd have stunt. I saw a team race go in the water. Might as well have hit a brick wall because the water did a lot of damage to it. Um, Monty Tyrrell era, uh, Derry Brown era. Mm. You've probably heard of those people. Yes, I've heard of them. And, um, okay, so that's that. See, the, you've actually uncovered some information I've never heard before. You know, flying out at Albert Park Lake there. Now, you know, we have a lot of international listeners as well, Colin, and so they'll know Albert Park Lake from being where the um, Australian Formula One Grand Prix is held. Well, where the pits are now. Yeah. Is where they used to fly control on between that and the water, of course. And there wouldn't be room there now. No. Now, is there, um, was it, so that, was that an organised club? Uh, well, it was the BMAA then, but it was ESMAC, I think, which was a control line. Well, there's no radio in those days. So it was ESMAC, I think, control line club that used to run nearly everything. Yeah. Eastern Suburbs Modera Club. And how many people would turn up to, to an event? <laughs> oh. 60, I'm guessing. They, they, they were flying stunt in the dark. <laughs> you know, the last flights of the day would be dark, were nearly dark, and then everybody would pack up in the dark and go home. They sound like good days, though. You look back on those days fondly. Well, they were good days. Um, look, you know, we used to, to get to Albert Park Lake, and remember you'd have, I'd have a stunter under one arm, I'd have a shoulder, I think, bag over my around my neck sort of and it'd have a two volt battery in it and some fuel and some lines and all that shit the two volt battery was a two volts off a car battery yeah so you know it was pretty heavy you'd go red in the face we catch the first train to hawthorne the tram then to around where the boat sheds are now around the back of albert park lake and then we walked the rest of it so we yeah we'd leave home at uh half past six or something we walked to the station a mile and a half or something, and we'd get down there at about half past nine, ten o'clock. Gee, that's a lot of effort. And then, you know, some somebody would come and pick you up and take you home about six o'clock. It was a lot of effort, but that's what you did then. Yeah. And it was precious time, you know, it was precious times. It's true. Okay, so then let's keep on progressing. So after sort of that kind of stint, you, so you got into flying control. I mean, the amazing thing is you did it all by yourself. Were you were you going to visit Hearn's Hobbies, the hobby shop, and to, to work out what was around? Or how would, how were you finding out about different models and, and, and that kind of thing? Well, when my, I was in the Oakley Model Aeroplane Club eventually. Uh, so you'd learn stuff from there. The, the main wheeler and dealer in the city was um, Model Dockyard with a, next door to the man tapping on the window, if you remember that. And Central Aircraft, Five Princess Walk, which is down uh, right on the arrow there, under Princess Bridge, just about. 
Uh, and well, the the central aircraft, particularly, you know, like you go in there, you could smell the dope and the fuel and bolts of dust, and you know, you knew you were in a hobby shop straight away. Not quite so much the dockyard. The dockyard was a bit more civilized. Everything in glass cases and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Tony Shinkotta worked in the dockyard in that state, in that oh, day, in that state. Yep. Gee, I wish he was still alive. It would be an interesting guy to talk to. Oh, you know, when he was in a hobby shop, he had stuff that nobody else had. Don't know how he did it. Yeah, it's true. He used to smoke a lot. <laughs> My missus would say, you've been in the hobby shop again because <laughs> she could smell the smoke on you. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how you learn stuff. And then, okay, so then you, you, you're out flying the control lines. How do you keep on progressing? What's the next step? Uh, well, we flew stunners and all that kind of stuff. I was always interested in gliders. Um, then I started flying free flight. Now, that must have been about 68, 69. And then in 72, I bought my first radio set. So I was still flying free flight and then dabbling in um, a proportional radio set, which was a two-channel brick. If you know what a brick is, it's a receiver and two servos in one unit. Um, was craft, and the beauty of that is it was easy to put in the model. The downside was <laughs> it came out the front with everything else when you hit something because it was heavy. <laughs> hit weighed eight ounces or something. Yeah, so I was going to say it's you know. And what about um? Actually, I've never asked this question. What sort of models? Yeah, tell me about the models. But then I've got a question I've never asked anybody before. But um, yeah, tell me what models were you put, putting that gear into? Well, basically free flight type things. They'd be about. Six foot, two metres, uh, uh, probably eight-inch cord or something, Clark Y airfoil, uh, nice solid bolts of fuselage, nothing fancy, didn't didn't have a glider canopy or anything on like a full-size one would, uh, and then just two channels, just rudder and elevator. And so what do you do? You use an engine to go up? No, 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 no. Chuck them off a hill in those days. Yeah. So you go slope-shoring. Uh, we used to go down to Torquay, um, just down the road from the nude beach, up the road from the nude beach. I, I never saw any nudes. So I was too busy interested in model aeroplanes, probably. Um, we used to go down to Phillip Island now and again. VARMS started in 68 and I joined VARMS in 72. VARMS is the, is, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, is is the it's really a, a glider-centric kind of club, isn't it? Um, been around for a long time and um, sort of... Well, the yes in, in VARMS is, says it all soaring. Yeah. So although we put up with other stuff, you know, it's basically a soaring club and it's really the only soaring club. That's true. Okay, so you joined in 72. How yep. old were you then in 72, roughly? Let's like, so just put some... Oh, 25 or something, about there. Okay, so you kept on going through that phase. You didn't get swayed by women and cars. <laughs> That's the recurring trend. I did, um, <laughs> in, but I never ran out of models. I never ran out of stunt models, and I, I never ran out of A2 gliders. Okay. I got down to one of each, I think, and they wouldn't come out very often. Um, and I played with cars for a while, and then, I don't know, got back into the radio gliders. A lot cheaper to play gliders than it is to play cars. So you're building everything and, um, uh, you know, of course, there's no ARS back in those days or anything like that. But, um, okay, so let's go then. 72, you said you joined um, VARM. So, you you know, it must have been a very new club. Where were, where was VARM's flying then? They, they were nomads. Um, 
so they fly in other people's paddocks. The, I don't. We eventually got the site that we had in um, Wonturna South there, but we we're flying in schoolyards in Wonturna. Oh, we had Glenfern Road at that stage. Glenfern Road sort of predates farms, I think. Um, people flying at Glenfern before they were flying. Yeah, that's a slope site. Yeah, yeah. People that's still a, fly there. The site I missed before. Still, people do. Nice thing. Once you joined VARMS, you're fly, obviously flying radio control now? Flying radio control, mainly slope soaring. Um, some models had hooks in them. VARMS built a winch. Uh, John Gottschall built it, uh, I'm going to say, maybe 75 or something. It was a petrol-powered winch because in 72, the first of the quarter-scale glider started. So he built this two-and-a-half-horsepower winch with a clutch on it arrangement to tow up gliders and you could tow up anything. I actually towed up an A2 sailplane with it once. You know, that's a 16 ounce sailplane, free flight. And it would also tow up uh, 20 pound scale gliders just by a different putting a different setting on the clutch. Uh, so I did a bit of flat field flying. Uh, I can remember, and it was a long time ago, but I can still remember I was much more successful at getting thermals with a free flight model than I was for, with a radio glider for a long time. And, and I don't know why that was, and just one day it sort of clicked. And and now, you know, I find it relatively... Did you ever fly at Elsinwick Park? Yeah, a couple of times, yeah. Um, that was good if you liked dodging bikes. Yeah. I, well, I've got this very vivid memory when um, I lived down that way when I was younger and seeing three guys at Elsinwick Park, and it's like a suburban park if you're from out of town, and seeing three massive gliders. They literally would be two and a half metre wingspan plus. Yeah, and they had, they had the winch out then. Yeah, bungee, yeah. was it? Yeah, it was bungee. Yep. They were using bungee. Um, this would have been 80s, probably early 80s. I'd say, oh, mid-80s maybe. Yep. And I just saw it and thought, that is the best thing. Oh, no, I could, could have watched them all day and they were just, you know, because they're graceful, aren't they? Oh, that's that sort of got me. Well, the first thing that I got me like was the first thing I got was gliders. You know, my, that was my entry into it. But um, okay. So and it's always interesting. Like, oh, actually, this is, I've got to ask you this question before I forget it. It's a question I've never asked anybody. You're talking about the radio gear that you first bought, and I, I've got some old aero modelling magazines here from the late '60s and stuff like that. And well, what fascinates me is the batteries that you'd have to use, and I look at them and go. How reliable were those batteries? Because to me, they look a bit scary. What do they call them, the D-Axe or something? Well, yeah. oh, your D-Axe are all right. Um, <laughs> but they were putting them in free flight models anyway, so the radio stopped working. It wasn't that big a deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, D-Axe. I remember my first set of D-Axe, and then I didn't have a charger, so Tony Sincotta showed me how to make one with a couple of alligator clips and a light globe and a... Um, uh, a couple of diodes and the, yeah, diodes, alligator clips, and you plug it onto your car battery and off you go. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> and you charge it up in about now, which these days isn't that fast to charge. In those days, it was. Uh, and by today's standards, there's a lot of dodgy stuff about, you know, dodgy charging, dodgy batteries, dodgy, dodgy leads, mm. dodgy radio setups. You know, we teach people a lot better standard these days than we ever did that. Well, we didn't teach people then. No, everybody was sort of self-taught. Uh, okay, so you're, let's go back to VARMS, right? So 72, you joined VARMS. You're getting involved. They had the winch going up. 
when, when did they end up getting their main their own site? Well, it's about thirty five years ago. So if we call that thirty two, that'd be about ninety. I'm not feeling. I'm going to say eighty eight was on my brain, but it might not be. It might be after eighty eight. Yeah, and so so they were wandering around really until then. Yep, and I don't know how they got it, but they got it through Parks Victoria, um, and they were on a one year lease. And when we did the big argument, you know, a few years later, the guy said, "Well, you know, you've been on a one year lease for all this time." And I said, "Well, hang on, uh, we've been on a twenty one year lease because that's how long it's gone for." Yeah, like we we had to stand up to them, but we had to stand up to the the council with a smile, for want of a better expression. Yeah, so now that Varms Club has um, recently lost their field and are re- in the midst of relocating, aren't they? Into police paddocks, which wasn't available back then. And if it was, we'd have a better deal now because we wouldn't have to move again. And, you know, the council's paying for everything, but um, we'll be paying rent on it. And I think, you know, we're just about going to have to ask them to drill on the wall, so to speak, because it's their building. Yeah. Whereas the old one, you know, it was our shed. Yeah, you could do it. You want to hang something from the roof? Just go and hang it. Yeah. Well, there were plenty of models hanging from the roof in the clubhouse, which was good. There was. And then we had to store all them. Oh, that's, that's true. I didn't think about that. Uh, so, where's the club at now? Like, how far off are they getting into that new site? Well, they're starting in February and nothing's turned to plot yet. So, they're, I believe, still arguing about the entrance, um, blaming COVID and all these kind of things. And they're just delaying tactics, I think. I'm cynical about that, but I think we will finish up getting it. You were president of the club for a while. Ten years. And that was the ten years um, when the basketball stadium started to come there. So we had to negotiate our little plot and all that and talk to councils. And I suppose we must have done a good job because we were on shaky grounds there. The, the deal Parks put to the council was you've got to accommodate farms. Now, what does accommodate mean? Mm. So that's the deal we're getting, you know, from going from there to, um, you know, they're relocating us in the original contract we had to pay for removing the old building and all sorts of stuff. Well, they did that pretty quickly with the D9. Um, you know, money doesn't seem to be as valuable to them as it does to us. And so, some of the priorities were all wrong. You know, we're not going to get a nice runway like we had before. We had as good a runway as anyone. It'll be long, it'll be big, but it won't be very, it'll be waterlogged half the year, I think. But we'll see. Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. A lot of clubs have to deal with that. Well, I'm a member out at the Pakenham Club and uh, we get flooded every couple of yep. years. And then you get cracks in summer. Yeah, yeah. Well, not at the moment. Actually, I haven't seen a crack for ages. I'm going to go out on the weekend, but I uh, haven't seen a crack for ages. But because um, So what have they done? Find out what they've done. Oh, it's just purely rain. They've had a lot of water. There's the, 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 um, Yep. There's plenty of water around at the moment. There are things about putting some sprinkler systems in and all that kind of stuff, but you've got to get funding and all that. But um, you know, I was a member of CMAC that was actually built on a swamp and they had to put pipes on there. They've set up a system with pipes and pumping water out of the runway. So it's, yeah, you know, it's a bit of, bit of uh, hard labour to get everything working. Well, the beauty of being on a swamp is you get to keep the place normally because they can't build on it. Well, that's true. There's another club down here, the Parks Club. They're on Melbourne waterland, so you can't, you know, you can't build on it. So they're they're pretty secure. So um, yeah, yeah, that's true. That is very true. Uh, now, in 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 '72, you go and join Varms, and you're flying free flight. You've just, you know, you, you've got the the radio control gear going as well. 
what's the next step after that? Oh, eventually I started building scar gliders. Uh, I built my first scar glider in about, I'm going to say, 78 or something. Was that just from plans or was it a kit or? It was a crick kit, a little grinner baby, six scale. And then I somehow got a roughly my kestrel that was either built or something because I can remember I glassed the wings and I used polyester (laughs) and I used lots of resin. So I had a 25-pound kestrel and if anyone knows a kestrel, kestrel should weigh about 12 pounds. Mine weighed 25, but it flew nice. How do you get it so heavy? Fiberglass, lots of it. Oh, on the wings. So I glassed it and filled it and glassed it and filled it and didn't sand enough off. But it flew okay. It flew okay. Um, I can remember it crashed down the bottom of the hill one time, and I don't know why it crashed. I blamed turbulence at the time, but it might have been a radio glitch or something. I don't know. You used to get radio glitches in those days. But the sound I made was like a Volkswagen hitting a uh, hitting a Volkswagen. Oh really? And. <laughs> And then, bang, up it came again. <laughs> and bits hanging off it and all that, and you're, you're still trying to fly, but it was broken. <laughs> now, you mentioned Ralph Learmont. Now, Ralph Learmont from um, a famous yep. name down Southern in this part, Plains. Southern Sailplanes, who had some of my fa- built some of my favourite models of all time. Like, the Ricochet is just, to me, it's yep. just a picture of beauty. I've actually got, got one sitting here secondhand that needs a bit of work, but I just bought it because... I never owned a ricochet, and as a child, that's what you wanted. Everybody wanted the ricochet, and, uh, and, and you won't get another one, I don't think. No, Ralph's Ralph, um, not a new Ralph, one. No, Ralph's well and truly retired now. But um, mm. you know what was what was Ralph doing? Because he was involved in the Varms Club as well, wasn't he? Yeah, because uh, well, I was member number eighty. He would have been in the first ten, I think, thereabouts. And he, so he was obviously a very active um, glider pilot. I know that he competed as well, didn't he? Yeah, he went to, I think, two world champs, hmm. one with a ricochet and one with a hornet. Okay. And so when did he start building models? Well, he was in Vance and I got this. I don't know. Um, but I can remember him going down to his house in Chadston um, and he had a stack of wings up against the wall. There was more than I'd ever seen before. There's probably only six or eight of them, but I've never seen that many wings all stacked up together. And he had kestrels and ricochets and hornets and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, he did lovely glass work, but it was all polyester, so it was heavy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, especially by today's standards, they were heavy gliders. But um, but back in their day, they were sort of, you know, pretty decent. But they, they didn't like penetration. <laughs> yeah, that is um, true. I want to fly mine off the slope. Yeah, well, they fly lovely wherever you take them. So, have you got an aerobatic one, or the um, you know, has it got ailerons? It's got ailerons. It's the full house one with the spoilers, and it's got you know, it's, it's all the everything's inboard. All the servos are inboard with these weird, you know, by today's standards, all these linkages <laughs> to get everything to work. Digital mixing. It's all done with your thumbs. Yeah, that's right. That is right. Bell cranks on bell cranks. Yeah, no, it's true. I actually, I actually got in contact with Ralph oh, a number of years ago now, probably four or five years, and he sent me a PDF document because I said, "How do you, how do you hook all this th- stuff up?" And he actually said, "said I'll send you the, the document that shows you like out of the instruction manual." And so I've got this, um, I've got this document of the uh, internals of the uh, yep. of the Sport Ricochet or whatever the model is, but um, about twelve pages. Yeah. So it's um, and the Kestrel was basically the same, and so was the Apollo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Apollo was bigger, wasn't it? 
But of course, in those days, you know, you got to remember, um, we weren't affluent enough to have servos in every model. They were dear. Yeah. So you were swapping. So you were swapping servos out. Yeah. And you didn't put. And that's why they were all in the fuselage because you, you know, you couldn't put them in a wing and get them in and out easy. Ah. I thought it was about clean, keeping the the wing nice and clean. Uh, it was more to do with um, money, I would think. Yeah. And they didn't, you know, you weren't going to put a servo on a model and leave it there forever. Nobody thought like that. Whereas today, you know, we glue them in today. Oh, things were expensive back then. I just they were. Everything being really expensive compared to nowadays, I think the hobby has gradually become more affordable, really. Um, you know, of course, Much things- more affordable. When I worked in a hobby shop in the 80s or something, and oh, well, when I bought my two-channel set, it was 100 bucks a channel. So I bought two-channel radio, and it was 200 bucks. And yet when I got my four-channel set, it was 400 bucks. And when I got a six-channel set, it was 600 bucks. Um, nowadays, you know, you can get, what do you get, 32 channels for 300 bucks or something. You can get a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You can get a lot, and it's, and it's cleverer. True. Yeah. How did you go with mixing and things like that? Did you did everybody try to do it sort of physically or just didn't you worry did it, about did it mechanically? Um, you know, you had a sliding servo in a flying wing, for example. And that was a bit hard on the servo that didn't move because if you hit something, the slide sliding servo just take the gears out and the one that did, but you used to be able to buy gears back then. Well you don't now, you just buy another servo. Um and um, Ralph's system of bell cranks on top of bell cranks, that was very clever, but uh, it was Stan Mason that thought that out, I think. Um, wasn't Ralph, I don't think. Were they, was, were Ralph's kits popular at the club, the Barms? Yep. Well, well, everybody had them at some stage. I was thinking, you go to a comp, and there'd be, you know, half of Ralph's stuff and half of other. Um and the only thing that got near him probably was a bird of time at the time. Uh, nothing else touched him. Rob Benton had a bird of time, and he was very good with it. So you did did you get involved in competition yourself? Uh, no, not really. I got involved with competition free flight. Um, got to world champs with that. But I, in radio gliders, no, not really. I'd pot I'd get along for comps sometimes to make up numbers, and occasionally I'd get among them, but. I wasn't really interested. I certainly wasn't dedicated to it. Yeah. And did, um, so what was sort of, was there a, a, did you gravitate towards one aspect of gliding? Like, you know, were you a scale guy or a slope guy? What, what was, what were you in? I went to scale and I, I counted up my scale models the other day just for a kick because I thought I had about 20. And I got 40. 40. Um, and some of them are really old. Some of them, are, yeah. But I've got one here from 68 that I refurbished. Um, so that was pre-VARMS, Peter Preston's, um, what's it called, Zephyr. So that used to fly on reeds. Uh, it had Fowler flaps, ailerons, retract, elevator, rudder. Really? All on reeds, yeah. I don't, think the element, I don't think the undercarriage would have actually supported its weight, um, but it was there and it went up and down. 40, wow, 40 planes. That's a lot of scale gliders. Yeah. And the, the, the Zephyr story was he, he went down to Torquay on his first flight 
threw it off the thing, took a couple of steps forward. Unbeknown to him, he put his foot under a, a strand of wire fence. He went A over T, and when he looked up, his model was floating in the water, getting blown around and washed ashore. Oh, no. And, and it went went through a few owners after that, and it finished up. I bought it for what the previous bought it, owner bought it for, which was 50 bucks, and refurbished it. And only had a few flights, and must get it out again, do a couple more. But that, that was quarter scale in 1968. Yeah, so when it came to um, scale scale gliders, were there any types that you gravitated towards or was it older gliders or newer gliders? All vintage. And it's interesting, though. I, I used to laugh because we'd go down to Packenham and stuff for a glider day and they'd always be expecting to see two-channel polyhedral model and we'd turn up with a scale glider that probably had eight or ten channels in it and they couldn't work out where all the channels went on a glider. <laughs> yeah. Um, they just they just used to knock them out. That gliders were so advanced compared to power planes at the time. Yeah, you know, we we're putting servos in the wings long before power planes were, I reckon, and yeah. certainly doing mixing long before power planes were with the, with the early radios. What do you think makes a good glider pilot? Like, what are you what are you what are you thinking about when you when you're flying your glider? Snowing up every time you land, you fail. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's as you said that um, you know some some days you just can't stay out. But your whole flight, it's like sailing a yacht. I reckon you know power's like running a speedboat. You just push the throttle forward and off you go, and you don't have to worry about much. Whereas a, a glider pilot, the whole flight, he's looking for a bit of air that's still embedded in the rest of the air around him. And it's like a sailboat, you know, it's it's looking for wind shifts and all that kind of stuff. Exactly the same. And we're very weather orientated, you know. Although we had a bit of confusion the last few weeks because we had a couple of days um, after a cold spell and the thermals were magic. And then we had some really hot days and you think, oh, it'll be on today. And there was nothing. And I think it's because we'd had hot nights the night before. And so you didn't have a temperature change. That's true. I never thought about that. But, yeah, I reckon you're 100% correct. They fly thermals in free flight over ice, um, and, and they don't get boomers like we do here. I've got a Foca 5, weighs 25 pounds or something, did an aerotator about 1,000 feet, and in eight minutes I could hardly see it. I had to, had to do aerobatics to come down, and you think, Europe, you know, they spent two hours gaining 1,000 feet. Yeah. So they, they don't understand our problems, we don't understand their problems. That is true. That is true. That you know, we're lucky we can get some pretty decent thermals. I was telling you just before we got on air about this story about I was up at my holiday house and saw this um wedge tail eagle and it caught this massive thermal and it did not flap its wings for a long time and the height was unbelievable. Yeah, you know, actually, you know, speaking of traveling here in Australia, you know, we often get in our cars and go out to country regions and that kind of thing. Please tell me that as you're driving along and you see that nice paddock, you think, wouldn't that be a nice paddock to go and fly a glider from? Not always. Uh, sometimes I look at a nice grassy paddock and think, gosh, it'd be nice to take my biplane off that. <laughs> yeah. Um, other times I see birds soaring. Like I'll, I'll stop a car and get out and watch a bird that they're mulling because um, it, it fascinates me and I, it amuses well, – not amuse me – you can learn stuff from watching and seeing what they're doing. 
and, and feeling the wind and say, well, his circle's different to mine. You know, he's got a constant bank and he drifts a lot further than I do. You know, things like that. So try and imagine what you'd be doing and deciding that that's not what he's doing. That's a good, that's a good idea, actually. What's a good bird thermaling and pick up a few pointers? You mentioned uh, flying the biplanes. He's still flying some power as well. Fly a little bit of power, but all my power planes have got either tailwalks in them or floats or both. So I'm a bit partial to float planes. And most of my stuff has got a motor in it. It's got a um, tailwalk in it. Even little foamies, they've got tailwalks in them. So we can tell little foamies, I've got a, I've got a stomp, not, not a very good tug. I've got a Ronka Champion. Um, when I, Everything else has failed on the day and it comes out. It's not a bad tug, but the rest of the time it gets killed for everything. The good tugs these days have got shitloads of power. Yeah. Lots yeah. of grunt. You know, they climb at 45 degrees. Um, the foresight people look at it and think, well, oh, that's not what we do, but they'd love to mm-hmm. uh, because you get the height very quick. And, you know, if you've got a, a stream of gliders lined up on the ground, you wouldn't, the, the quickest way is to get them up there quick, you know, so none of this mucking about. Um, it takes 39 seconds to get a glider, about 40 seconds to get a glider at a height. Um, we're talking, you know, 1,500 feet or something. It takes another 40 seconds to get down, but they're in the circuit and waiting to hook up for the next model is about two minutes. So the up and back bit's the quick bit. I like the idea of uh, being a tug pilot, you know, pulling things up, you know, you'd be... You'd be pretty busy doing lots of takeoff and landings, but uh, I just think it'd be a rewarding thing to do. I just something about it fascinates me. Yeah, fascinating. You never got landings because you do lots of them. Yeah, that's true. And you and you also because the glider tows you out of position sometimes, you get very well, very good at flying with your thumbs, not in a normal position. You know, you're flying with the model crossed up and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And to the extent that sometimes when you start flying a glider or another model again. You don't trim it properly, you just fly crooked, you know, you fly it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you take your hands off and you go, oh, that's a bit out of trim. Yeah, that's true. And where is your favourite flying site? Oh, so to say the old barn site, I used to enjoy pretty much. We go up to Cobram, we have a pretty good time there, aero towing. Uh, probably Camperdown's the best slope site on a good day. You fly anything at Camperdown, from big models to small models. Sometimes it gets a bit busy because... If you're flying off the point, it's only a small point, but you can get, yeah, you seem to be able to go right out over the middle of the lake. So if you've got something big, you just see it through somewhere else. You don't have to fly with all the little models because it's not a fair argument. You know, you get a little model that you built in a week and you get a big scale model that took you two years. It's not a fair argument if you have a mid-air. Yeah. Where else are you flying slope around in Victoria here? I know that um, Hollowback was a, was a spot to go, but not really... Not really the flavour of the month anymore since they put some telephone. What is it for flying 36 meg? <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. 36 meg's okay up there. Um, 2.4 is certainly not. Um, some of the sites in Gippsland are starting to disappear. Uh, they're being sold or things like that. Uh, Phillip Island's still got a few good sites on it, as has the coast down there at Kilcunda. But they're you know, you're only getting, uh, I don't know, you're not getting not getting very high. So, you know, you, you, you're on a 50-foot slope, so you only get another 50 foot above that. You've only got 100 feet to do manoeuvres, and sometimes your manoeuvres want more than that. It's true. I've been going down at um, 13th Beach. There's a – at the hang glide launch spot, uh, it's marked on Google Maps. And, um, again, yeah, similar kind of situation. You know, 
too too elevated but it, it, you know you can you can know, take a little model there and it's you know it's not too bad with a little model so where's 13th beach 13th beach is down past a long way ocean grove bowen heads sort of way near yep. bowen heads but not down as far not as far as torquay no no not as far as torquay in that sort of bite sort of as you're looking back towards sort of bowen heads yep um, we used to fly it um used to go down to bowen heads every christmas and spend three weeks there and I said to people later, I said, in hindsight, that's where I got good at flying slope because you do it every day for three weeks and you didn't notice it. But when you came back, you were a lot better at it than when you went down there. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Time on the sticks. <laughs> you can get better. Yeah. Lucky, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? What are you um, What are you mainly flying now? Well, we can't fly sky glider. So most of them are electric thermal saurus. So you've got a set of a winch. Nobody flies winch anymore. I've got an electric fan in the front, sometimes with a height limiter, so you get up to 150 metres, the fan turns off automatically and you stay, try and stay for seven minutes. Pretty simple rule, pretty easy to fly. They're nice models to fly. Um, oh, and there's a landing tape too, so landings become a bit of a um, thing. So you get better at landings as well. Because the landings are hard because they've got to be on time and on the spot. When electric models sort of came into being, you know, electric gliders, what was the general consensus about them? Were there people saying, oh, it's not a proper glider because now it's got a motor on it, or was it was sort of a welcome thing? Well, I was building them pretty early in the piece with, without a great deal of success, probably because, um, again, you didn't understand exactly what they needed. You know, you're using big, heavy NICADs, um, heavy ferrite motor, stuff like that. Um, but as soon as I changed over to LiPos and um, three-phase motors, Man, the world is at your oysters at your feet. And, you know, you can fly anything electric now. I've got, I've got, in my shed, I've got electric stutters. Uh, I've got electric scale gliders. That, um, what do you call them? Motor gliders. And then I've got electric glider gliders, you know. that um, I've got an Apollo with an electric fan in the front. Oh, really? Quite a pleasant thing to fly. Chevy as, no lack of penetration. I was down visiting... Uh... Dave Prattley, who's in the gliding scene, he's fixing a, yep. a, a an F5J glider that I launched into the back of my head because I'm an idiot. But um, he showed me this little, we're talking about discus launch gliders, and he was showing me this little one-meter wingspan elf or something that's called with electric motor at the front. and But the motor's yep. actually in the in the nose cone, and it's, it's you know, you don't have to throw it up anymore. You can basically launch it off this tiny little battery pack and, Get it yep. up and have a glide around. And I said, "Oh, that's pretty cool. I really like that." And it's got full ailerons and everything. And you watch them, and they're the closest thing to free flight when you watch them fly. Yeah, you know they'll, they'll bob around on a little thermal. Next thing you know, you're five hundred feet. You can hardly see them. Now, tell me about this, like with free flight and catching a thermal. How does it work? How do you catch a thermal in free flight and the, and the model stay in the thermal when you've got no control? Is it? Designed to, to turn. Well, it's, it's not that you haven't got control. So um, the ones I did, they had a two-position rudder and a swinging tow hook, yeah. and the tow hook was captive on the line. So you tow them up. When the line's tight, the glider toes up straight. When you get slack on the line, the glider circles, and because the line's still attached, it turns a bit tighter than normal, so you don't have to run downwind too fast to catch it. And you can do that all day if you want to. Tow it up into wind like a kite, let the line go slack, round it goes, do it again. And you keep doing that 
until you find that um, uh, so for a simple expression, the line is tight all the way to the top of the line to the point where you can actually, without running, the glider will go ahead of you. You know, it'll go in front of the direction of the wind. And you think that's a thermal, so you let the glider go around again, put some line tension on it, it unlatches, and then you just let the line go. The rudder goes back into its normal position. It's got a bit of wing twist in it to hold the inner wing up. It's got rudder to make it turn. And if everything's right, away it goes in a thermal. Okay. Just like that. So you really got to launch it into a thermal. You've got to be pretty close to it. The, they run a, um, the inside wing has more incidence. So as it comes up the stall each time, it drops that wing a little bit. So therefore, it does all these sort of figure nines until it centers on the thermal. But every time it hits a thermal, it goes up, it nose comes up, stalls, and it goes around again, and eventually, you know, three or four turns, you've sent it on the thermal, and away it goes. Sure. And I found that much easier than trying to do it with a radio glider. Really? Hmm. What's the, what's the longest flight you've done on a free flight? Uh, free flight model glider, probably 35 minutes on. What about the radio control glider? Have you had any oh. monster flights? Five hours. Odd. And I only, I only landed because in those days we didn't have telemetry, so we didn't know the batteries were going. That was up at Swan Hill flying with the little hawks, little critters, because sometimes they'd be in a thermal, sometimes they wouldn't, but they'd be circling like they were. So they'd lead you astray more often than not. What model was that that you were flying? You had a five-hour flight. thing called Mobo, my own bloody aircraft, um, Gary Sunderland's full-size glider, quarter scale, one of that. So his was heavy by, by standards in those days. And the model was light, and it had a good airfoil, so it, it was really a good staying-up aircraft. Even though it had bugger all the it fly by itself. It was a nice aircraft. It had retracts, flaps, and all the other stuff. So uh, what are, what's sort of your go-to model now? Have you got a go-to model that you always enjoy flying and comes out more often than not? No, I try and um, rotate them. Uh, I've got a couple of models, you know, they're two or three years old now, and they've only flown twice because of COVID. So I took one of them down to camp and down with me. Um, last time we aerotated, I took two that haven't been flown before. You know, their first flights and they're five months old. Paint dry. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a bit like that. We all had um, a, a long list of planes that we had to make, and I've still got some that haven't uh, haven't flown yet, but I haven't had the opportunity, but uh, they'll be done in the next year or so. What's some some controller models that I built over COVID, and they've only just been out for their first flight. Oh, really? Where are you flying those? Where are you flying the control line? Uh, I was, well, either at Knox or down at the Frankston Club. Oh, yeah. Okay. So are you a member down there as well or those clubs? So I'm not a member of any free flight clubs at the moment, but I've joined the control line club because I do more of that. You know, when you think about it, Colin, you've been involved in aero modelling for a very long period of time. You know, have you ever had any kind of break along the way or has it just been consistently being involved? I've been on the fringe. When I got married first time, um, for probably five years, you know, I didn't build any models. Uh, since then, nothing. And as you get better at it, you don't crash as many so when they're gliders. And even if you do break them, you can glue them back together. Yeah, that's true. So, um, you know, that's how come I've got 40 scale gliders because you fix them because they're not fuel soaked. Yeah, that's true. Just keep on going for years. You don't, you don't think of it, but, you know, if you get a, a fuel model and go and have one flight on it, 
you got to try and stick a transfer on it, and it just won't stick. Even out near the wind chips, you can't get it to stick because it's just a, it's had a little coating of oil and. Yeah, oh, there's, there's something about gliders, like even, you know, the, I've got a couple of discus launch gliders and uh, sometimes I just go up to this uh, little paddock kind of thing up in the country and all I've got in the car is a transmitter and a tiny little DLG and that's it. And you put the glider under your arm and the transmitter in the other hand. You don't worry about taking a case or anything else. You just put the glider and the transmitter and you walk into this paddock and you throw the glider up in the air and then you keep on throwing it up you know, and then just having a crack. And I just love that simplicity of it's just so easy. It's just so easy. So yeah. how could you keep that up for without a thermal? This, this is a trick question. Yeah, that my th- that one is not great because it's only about a w- one-meter wingspan. It's full carbon fiber thing, but it's small. And, I've, I've, and how long do you reckon this stays up for? Oh, you two, know, two minutes. It's still one. early in the morning or something. Look, I okay. Do you say that, two minutes? Yeah, that one's not that great. I think that it's a bit too heavy for what it is. But I th- I've got another one which I haven't flown, which is a competition DLG, and that'll stay up for ages. With yeah, no, no. The question is, see, because you got to know the still air performance to know when you're in the thermal, don't you? Yes. Look, that thing. So the, the 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 true question was, you know, it's probably I know. Um, Free flight chuck gliders, they used to be struggling to do a minute, and then these tip launch gliders come on along and they're doing two minutes easy. Yeah. Um, so you're probably doing about two minutes. So anything above two minutes, you're in lift. Yeah. And that's sort of as good a way you'll ever get as picking thermals. And if you study what you did just before you launch, you learn um, the signs that were there before you launched that there's a thermal coming through. Just Pratley and all them know it. Ralph knew it way back then. Some yeah. people are better than that. Free flight people know, know it. I can tell you when there's a thermal coming in your probability, you know, 80% of the time, 90% of the time. Well, that's the thing. I think that the thing that I like about gliding is, you know, it's it's an all-encompassing kind of thing. It's a different experience of flying a powered plane in that you've got to be really in tune with your surroundings. And and, and you've got to have some knowledge about weather and thermals and and where you know a thermal is likely to be, and where they move, and all that kind of stuff. And it, of course, every day is a different day. And you know, it's like sailing, really. <laughs> it's true. It's a bit like I, I also equate it to it's like fishing. That I don't know. I can't see the fish, but I think they might be here because I think they might live here, and I'll think they want to eat this bait, but I'll give it a go. That's why I keep on saying. And some fishermen are better than others. Well, that's true. It's like glider pilots, and I'm not one of the best, but I, I want. I want. I to wonder get if they know stuff. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'd say they probably do. Are there any models that you'd love to own? Still, like on the bucket list of planes to own. Uh, now I keep seeing. Oh, I've got the, at least three fiberglass fuselages up in the loft for scale gliders, all bigger than quarters. Uh, um, three and a half scale and third scale. They've got to come down if I live long enough. I'm 75 now, so I'm going to have to hurry. I've got another one that I got down the other week because I bought it. I couldn't help myself. Um, of a box a bit from gliders. What do they call old gliders in Poland? Yeah. Uh, and it's a motor glider, five-meter motor glider. Okay. And uh, you look at it, and I don't see more structure in free flight models, so I don't know how it'll go, but we'll try. Yeah. Uh, a lot of hardwood in it, so um, might get heavy quick. 
I might replace some of it with balsa. We were getting some stuff called Paulana here, but we can't get it anymore, and that was like hard balsa. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a wood from um, plantation timber from Queensland. Lovely stuff. Bit short grain, but it's like hard balsa. If you get hard balsa, but hard balsa is nearly as good as spruce, and it glues better. Yeah, glues better than spruce, you say? Yeah, well, spruce is oily, so it's hard to glue properly. Yeah, that is true. Well, we'll come to that uh, point in time, Colin, where I ask you the all-important question, the question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to, and that is, what has been your all-time favourite model? Which could be hard. You've owned a lot of gliders and planes along the way, but can you give me that number one? I'd, I'd, I'd say probably my Golden Eagle. I built it in 84 because the real one was having its 50th birthday. Uh, and it gets flown at least once a year now. doesn't come out very often. It's done time at camping and it's probably th- been thrown off most hills around the place. It's been aerotoed. Its first flights are off the winch, the Mammoth Queens. And just because it's a, sort of a bit famous, they don't fly the real one anymore, but the model can still fly, which I think is pretty special. So that's third scale and about 25 pound. Yeah, okay. Well, that's a, that's a great answer. I like that. There's, there's other planes that fly better than it, but it's you, you bring it out and everybody goes, oh, wow, you still got that. That's good when you get that reaction, though. And anyway, it's not easy to get a good landing, but when you do, it's nice. It's always nice to um, do it. Isn't it one of the most enjoyable things when you when you land a plane nicely? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? You can have a really good flight, but if you do a crappy landing, the whole flight becomes crappy. <laughs> yeah. I always say people only ever remember the landing. They can't remember everything before it because you know, – you know, yep. we can all see the landing right up close. So, that's uh, right under your nose, isn't it? Yeah. Did you ever try full size gliding? I went full size gliding a few weeks ago. I, I didn't do it, but I sat in the front seat and did a lovely two hours odd up in Bendigo. Oh, really? How'd you like that? Hmm. It's bloody hot, but it was lovely. That's yeah. the first time I've enjoyed a glider flight. Most of the glider flights. Um, it just went straight up and straight down, but this we stayed up. We'd landed because we wanted to at the end of about two hours. Mm. The guy that was flying in the back seat, he chased his own gliders being flown by somebody else. We saw that Buddha at Ballarat there, Bendigo there. Yeah. There's a big Buddha being built. Um, yeah, it was lovely. Got to, got cloud base, and I went, gee, those clouds are whizzing by. And then I thought, no, hang on, there's no wind today. So I was just whizzing by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was good. Loved yeah. it. Yeah. I, I, I had a go on a full-size glider a couple of years ago, and, um, yeah, that was, it was a good experience. I, I, you know, the, the overwhelming thing when I was in the glider was how f- safe I felt. just felt so safe sitting in that cockpit. do not know why. I just, I don't know. And the other thing you um, can't get over is how much bank they put on them when they turn. From a modelling point of view, you know, we were all about these nice flat turns. Well, hang on. Please. You reckon they're standing on a winch, but they're not. You know, they're not even forty-five degrees. Well, they're heading to it. Well, I I was impressed with the um the air brakes, how effective they were when coming into land. Oh, you just feel them working. It was amazing. And they're noisy, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know what I was testing out to see whether it's something that I wanted to actually do and learn how to you know get my glider license and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but then when I started feeling a bit. Uh, motion sick i thought maybe it's not for me but uh. i think you get over that because i was motion sick after about two hours. i wasn't motion sick but i was my head was spinning a bit and that took an hour or two to level off but um i would think the more you do it 
that would you'd overcome that, I would think. Yeah. And also, if you're holding a stick, you, you'd you'd be you'd know what the sensation was coming because you did it. That's true. Yeah. Does that make that sense? Makes, does make a lot of. You ever tried to follow somebody with a, a power plane in another power plane? You ever tried to follow somebody? And when they turn, at half a second before you said, oh, he's turned, and you get onto it, and you always overshoot, and, you know, you lag behind. Well, it's the same with when a glider pilot starts doing stuff, you know. By the time he's got his turn going, your head's still flying straight and level. Oh, yeah. I think that's why, why your head sort of does it. The other thing you've got to do is just sit there, um, you know, sort of with your arms across the seat belt. So when the plane banks, you bank with it. Because that keeps you in the inner ears level. That's another good point. I'm going to have to give it a go. There's a, 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 well, I had have Russell another crack, Ed- mate. I had Russell Edwards on the uh, on the podcast, and he's a uh, he's flying full size gliders. You know, he's a aero modeler, but loves his full size gliders. He said I should go up and have a fly. But um, where's he? He flies up at Benella. Oh yeah, from, from Melbourne. Yep. He flies up at Benella at the uh, the club there. He's got yep. a glider up there, but. Well, Colin, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Really enjoyed having a chat. Um, thank you for all the work that you've done for the gliding community down here, Victoria. I know you did a lot of work with the Varms Club and uh, and um, good to see that you're enjoying yourself still out there and active in the gliding scene. So well done, Colin. I've enjoyed every minute of my life gliding, I tell you. And there'll be more tomorrow and the day after. Thank you for calling me. About to leave, already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Feels good to say that sometimes, but then another time to think, oh, it's a bit of a shame. Don't know what your thoughts are. If you've got this far, you probably enjoyed it, I hope. A uh, big thank you to Colin Collier for joining me. Love talking gliders. I always say I'm a big fan of gliders. Hoping to get my big glider back soon from repairs after I launched it into my head because I'm an idiot. A beginner's mistake, you could say. Uh, so that'll happen shortly, I hope. And I hope you're getting out there and making the most. Uh, you know, if you're down here in the Southern Hemisphere, which many of you are, good weather to be going out flying. Um, you know, down here in Victoria, we've had some pretty good flying weather, so I hope people are getting out there. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere and you're covered in snow, put some skis on your plane and get out there and have a crack. Put the lipos in your pocket, they'll warm them up before you fly. Uh, but you know, the, the end is near for the, the cold snap. You know, start getting ready, start getting your planes built. So big shout out to everybody in the Northern Hemisphere that is listening to this podcast. And uh, don't forget, if there are any guests that you'd like to hear on the podcast, please send me a message, get on to the flatoutrc.com.au website, send me a message, get on, or on Facebook, uh, get on flatoutrc Facebook page and uh, send me a message, whichever way you want. I'm keen to hear from you. So thanks once again for joining me. I'll be back next week and we'll probably be talking aero modelling. Fancy that. <laughs>